Resurrection Sunday. Yes, the kids can leave. (laughs) If you'd like to turn in your your Bible, just open up your Bible, but your bulletin has an extensive outline. I gave you more of an extensive one today because we may not get through it all. But again, when it comes to Christianity, Christianity begins where religion ends. I want you to get this. Christianity begins where religion ends with the resurrection. That's the distinguishing mark of Christianity. Our Savior, our Lord, our Master, resurrected from the dead. That's the very heart, that's the pivotal doctrine, the fact that there is a resurrection. As I thought about uh, my church back home, I grew up at Brockton Baptist Church, or actually it was First Portland Baptist Church. Etched in my memory from those growing up years at Brockton is that familiar hymn, He Lives. And the ending stanza says this, You ask me how I know He lives. He lives, well I won't sing it, uh, within my heart. (laughs) He lives within my heart. And though that is true, he does live in my heart because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And it creeps, creates many warm emotions. The proof of Jesus Christ's resurrection is not based on my feelings. It's based on the Word of God. Okay? See, that's what Paul was getting at. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, some, well, religions of the world have their own ideas, their own thoughts of what, who God is and how to get to God. And, and yet those are just man-made thoughts and emotions and they might feel good for them for the moment, but they are not true. But when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is true. It's based off of truth. And again, the scriptures very clearly uh, proclaim it. That's why it's important when it says that he appeared 11 different times to f- even at one time 500 disciples. Uh, there's a whole no- a number of things that point to the proof of his resurrection. Everything from where the angels, the, the stone was rolled away, the, the way the clothing was uh, laid out, and all of a sudden Peter and John understood and believed. Uh, the many, many proofs of the resurrection. As Corinthians 15, when I just was reading verse 3, and how uh, Dave this morning gave our devotional, he referenced 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. He says, He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Again, according to the Scriptures. You're going to hear that a lot today. According to the Scriptures. But this morning, we're not going to actually look at the proofs of the resurrection. We're going to take it from a different uh, point of view. In other words, we're not going to uh, show how to prove the resurrection, but I want to do this. What does the resurrection prove? Okay, I'm assuming that you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And again, there are many proofs, and we've looked at them uh, over the years. I want to reverse that. Because he rose from the dead, what does it prove? And I'm going to give you seven of them. What does it guarantee? What does it verify? What does it uh, accomplish? What does it mean for sure that is true? Okay, because he rose from the, from the dead. Because everything, 
Everything I'm going to talk about today hangs on the fact that he is risen. <laughs> Everything. I think sometimes we forget, well, we don't forget if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, but just how the world looks at Christianity, they would kind of look at it this way, well, that's their thoughts. You know, and then you have these other religions and that's their thoughts. And because it's just, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, and whatever you have now, that's all that matters. That's the world's thinking. That's just their thoughts. No, because the resurrection is true, it proves these seven things. Because Christ rose from the dead. So again, Christianity, as one man said, is essentially a religion of resurrection. Everything is built on that. If, if, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we're just going through the motions just to feel good for a few years. But because he rose from the dead, these things are true. And the first one is this. The resurrection proves the truthfulness of the word of God. Now again, many times you think of it in reverse or normally you think of it this way. The word of God proves the resurrection. But I want to reverse that and say no. Well, that's true. <laughs> but the resurrection also proves the truth of, truthfulness of the word of God. And that is not circular reasoning because of the time frame. Okay, But the resurrection, the fact that Christ rose from the dead, proves that the book you have is true. That's why we need to keep going back to the resurrection. Let me give you an example. Uh, Acts chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there. Acts chapter 2. And again, you're familiar with uh, Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost. I'm going to read a number of verses. This is where the church was born. This is where the believers were filled. They spoke known languages because the Spirit of God was saying, basically, this is the church, and the church is going to begin with the Jew. Because the big question would have been, because it was the Jew that killed Christ as far as the, 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 the uh, Jewish uh, leaders, and they were affirming maybe Jews are completely out and, and this showed that no, God still had the purpose for the Jew. Uh, they were going to be part of the church. Uh, by the way, the, the Lord still has the, a purpose for the nation of Israel. They will never be destroyed. If they are destroyed, then find a different religion. I mean that very seriously. Then the God of the Bible is not true. That's how, that's how much is riding on this. Uh, I'm not saying that they may not go through catastrophic issue uh, of war in perhaps Israel. But you will never find that there is no Jew standing. In the tribulation, you have 144,000. Uh, you have a uh, conversion. Romans 9 talks about all Israel will be saved. Everybody stand, left standing at the end of tribulation will, that, of the Jews will turn to their Messiah. Finally, after all these thousands of years, God's name is at stake. God's character is at stake. Everything's at stake. That's why, even though if, I'm sure when you watch the news it frustrates you, just understand, it's really, when it's all said and done, the God of this world against the God of Scripture. That's really what's going on. And when it's all said and done, uh, God is going to win. <laughs> but that was even, not even my notes. That was just, a, I just had to get that off my chest. Okay? 
Okay, Acts 2, this is really what's in my notes. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in, in your midst, as you yourselves also know. You, you saw him. Him being delivered by the, de- by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It's all in God's plan. This was not plan B, like he went to the cross because Israel didn't receive him. No, this was foreordained. And you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Talking about the, speaking specifically to the Jew, whom God raised up, and there's the resurrection, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It's not possible. He's the son of God. But now this is where we start seeing the scripture. For David says concerning him, now that's King David, a thousand years earlier, for, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my, moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, and you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now again, that's referring specifically to our Lord. You have not made, excuse me, you have uh, made known to me the ways of life and you will make me uh, full of joy in your presence. Now, this is actually a quote out of Psalm 16. And again, David was not writing about himself because indeed he did go to Hades. I mean, he's, that's uh, uh, as far as the grave, that's what he, Old Testament, Hades, or New Testament, Hades, Sheol, the grave. He went to the grave. He, He hasn't been resurrected yet. David's not, so it's not talking about himself. Look at verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak. By the way, this is a great thing about Scripture. If you just keep reading, it's usually explained. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and in his tomb. <laughs> his tomb is, is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. That's the throne of David. See, what he's doing is he's saying, listen, David said this in Psalm 16, but it was, David wasn't speaking about himself. David was speaking about Christ. He's going to be coming from the loin of David. He's going to be the one that is the first fruit, the one that rises, and he's going to be the one that sits on David's throne. Verse 31, he, he foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. That his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. This Jesus, this Jesus. And so Peter's uh, preaching, he's going back to Psalm 16. He's saying, this is not about me. This is, David was talking about Christ. That Christ would not see corruption. Three days he would rise again. This Jesus God has raised up. And this is, uh, this is going back to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament specifically saying, now again, a thousand years earlier, that there would be one who would die, he would not see corruption, before even his body would be, uh, see corruption, he would rise from the dead. And so it points directly back to a resurrection. Now do you see how when... Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It points right back and says, see, the scriptures are true. It proves the truthfulness of scripture. Go over to Acts 13. Acts 13. 
And by the way, you can find all kinds of, every time it says in New Testament, according to the scriptures, that's what he's doing. He's going back and saying, according to the Old Testament, do you see how it's, it's been uh, fulfilled? The prophecy has been filled. And each time you see according to the scripture or as the scripture needs to be fulfilled, just think in your mind. See, it proves that the word of God is true. Because again, prophecy fulfilled. But here, it's actually the resurrection proves that the scriptures are true. Look at verse uh, 28, 13, 28. Well, actually, for time, uh, verse 29. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, that's Christ, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him. Again, 11 different instances where he appeared to either an individual or a group of people. Over and over, establishing that, in fact, he had risen from the, from the grave. And uh, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings. That promise which was made to the fathers, again, going back to the Old Testament. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he, he has raised up Jesus. Again, as it is also written in the second Psalm. This is Psalms 2, and he gives us, a, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, look at this, verse 34, in that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus in Isaiah 55, uh, five, uh, I will give you sure mercies of David. And look at this, verse 35, therefore he also says in another psalm, and, and that's actually a repeat of what we just read, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption, Psalm 16.10. Keeps going back, keeps going back. Why does he keep going back? Because he's saying, especially that last one, for our purposes, the resurrection proves that the scriptures are true. I, I, I trust that you just have a love for the book. That indeed, every word is true. Right? Like Psalms 19. Every word is true. We can go back and have absolute confidence that uh, the book we hold is true. And the fact that we know the resurrection is true proves that the scriptures are true. 1 Corinthians 15.3, again, according to the Scriptures. Twice it says that, according to the Scriptures. Or when Jesus said, um, you know, uh, destroy this temple in three days, I, it, it will be uh, restored. And when he rose from the dead, proved that the Scriptures would be, were true, that what he said was true. So again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves the accuracy, the truthfulness, the preciseness of the Scriptures. What do they say? There's like 300 different prophecies just about Christ alone in the scriptures. And up to this point, only about 100 of them have been um, fulfilled. We still have about 200 more to go. And every time you see that fulfillment, every time you see a fulfillment, you just have to, and the scriptures are true, and the scriptures are true. We've got to depend on the, on the scriptures. How about the second thing? The resurrection proves the existence of God. Now again, religions have sought to explain whether there is a God and what he is like, right? And all these different religions have all their different types of gods. Some religions only have one God. Some religions have many gods. I mean, if you think about it, Muslims obviously only have one. And yet, Muhammad lived and he died in 632 and we haven't seen him. Right? Now, when it comes to Hinduism... They have a whole lot more. I think they have 300 million different gods. How do you have 300 million different gods? I guess you have to have like a billion people because you have to have all kinds of... 
But they have 300, 300 million different gods in Hinduism. And the whole question is, is there a God and what is he like? Well, they've over-explained, right? All these gods, again, Buddha, Buddhism, New Age, all the different Tao, animus, all the different religions. This is what our God is like. This is, this is who our God is and this is what he's like. Again, each religion is given a different answer. And again, for us, we have to be careful because, uh, not us as believers, but just in America, you know, what is it, just there? Okay, they must have grown up in a Christian home, that's why they're Christians. If they grew up in a Muslim home, they would be Muslim, or if they grew up in a Hindu home, they'd be Hindu. Or is it that our God is the true God? The resurrection proves the existence of God, our God. Again, all the other religions, what? Their leaders are what? Dead. Those who founded all those other religions, they died and they did not rise from the dead. But ours, our one leader, Jesus Christ, he died, but then he rose again and is still living. So, the resurrection of Jesus Christ alone gives certainty to two things. That there is a God and that the true God is the God of the Bible. I mean, if, if the resurrection happened, when I say if, I'm, I'm saying in this sense, like Colossians 3, since, since the resurrection happened, then Christianity, Christianity's God is the only God. He's the true God. He's the one and only God. Or to say this way, the only true God. Every other God is false. Now, by the way, that is why people hate you if you say that. Does that make sense? Don't you see how that's really offensive to a lot of people? Oh, so you're telling me that the person I'm worshiping is false. Yep. No, that's what Christianity says. That's why when you hear on the news that there's a a greater and greater intensity of hatred towards Christians, just understand that's where it's coming from. See, because if we could say this, you know what, yeah, let's just all get along, and I've got my God and you've got yours, and we're just good to go. That's That's not what Christianity says. Christianity says he's the only true God, the one who raised Christ from the dead and all others are false. That immediately makes people want to, you know, pick up a stone. Um, R.A. Torrey, the old preacher from 100 years ago, he had an extensive quote, but I think it encapsulates it, uh, summarizes this point. Quote, Every effect must have an adequate, adequate cause. Right? Cause and effect. Every effect must have an adequate cause. And the only cause adequate to account for the resurrection of Christ is God, the God of the Bible. While on earth, our Lord went throughout Israel proclaiming God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as he loved to call them, the God of the Old Testament, as well as the God of the New Testament. He proclaimed that men would put him to death by crucifixion. And he gave many details as to what the manner of his death would be. He further said that after his body had been in the grave three days and three nights, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, as well as the God of the New Testament, would raise him from the dead. Now, didn't he make all those claims? And he kept saying it over and over. And I'm sure as a disciple, yeah, we heard that one. Although they weren't catching exactly what he was saying. Okay, but the point is he just kept emphasizing, my father the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was a great claim to make, Tori goes on to say. 
It was an apparent impossibility. For centuries, men had come and men had gone. Men had lived and men had died. And as far as human knowledge, founded upon definite observation, the experience was concerned that that, that, that was the end of them. In other words, that was going to be. He kept making this claim, though. I would rise from the dead. But this man, Jesus Christ, did not hesitate to claim that his experience would be different. That was certainly an acid test for the existence of God. He preached and his God stood the test. I love that. Isn't that what he just, he put it down and he obviously knew he would rise from the dead. And that was the acid test of who the true God was. The fact that Jesus Christ was miraculously raised makes it certain that that the God who did it really exists and that the God he preached is the true God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. That's the only true God. And that's what the resurrection proves. Resurrection proves that there is only one God and it's the God of the Bible. Number three, the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. Now let's, let's kind of delve into this a little bit deeper. Again, no greater proof exists for the divine nature of Jesus Christ than, again, him rising from the dead. And he made that statement about his deity, about his being God over and over and over again. Just to take one that Paul did, uh, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, this is kind of like a, a, a short version. You know, again, in Scripture you see this often where uh, Paul will do away with all the pieces only to give you the concise thought. And in Romans 1 verse 3 says this, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now that again points to Christ being uh, a man. David's seed, okay, man. And then Paul goes on, he says, And declared to be the son of God. So now we have man, God, the God man. The God man. With power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And this is what Paul is arguing, that since Jesus was raised from the dead, then Jesus is God, because he's putting all these together. He says, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. In other words, the fact that Christ rose from the dead proved that who he truly was was not just man. Because people even to this day, oh yeah, he was, a, he was a good example, you know, he was a good teacher. By the way, he's not a good teacher if he proclaims himself to be God and is not, right? I mean, how many of us would say, you know what, a good teacher is one who lies. Christ proclaimed himself to be God. The fact that he rose from the dead means that the Father accepted what Christ said, <laughs> He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good example. He's God himself. So, let me give you the fuller reasoned argument. This is actually from James Boyce, but I like this. Okay? The resurrection proves that Jesus Christ himself is God, the deity of Christ. Again, Jesus claimed to be God's son. He claimed to be God over and over again. Before Abraham was, I am, John 8. John 5 says, uh, he's speaking, God was, was his father, making him equal with God. And, every, you know, you can almost see the religious leaders of the day, every time he would go down this path of talking about his deity, they'd be like this. <laughs> so he continually 
talked about God as his Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. You know, all these different claims. Number two, these claims are either true or false. Jesus cannot be partly God. He is either God or he is not God. Does that sound right? He claimed to be God and it's either true or false. I really want you to kind of get this. You know, I know that, you know, after you leave here in just a few minutes, you'll probably throw away the outline and, and like, yeah, okay, yeah, what was it about? Resurrection, okay. But I want you to think about this. Christ proclaimed to be God. That's either true or false. If his claims are false, they are deceptive or deceitful and blasphemous. If you have a teacher who's given you false information, and especially as it pertains to God himself, that's blasphemous. Number four, if it's blasphemous, it is inconceivable that God, the true God, could or would honor that particular person. So, I'm God, he says, that's either true or false. If it's false, it's blasphemous, and you can't believe that if it's blasphemous, God's going to honor that particular person. But, number five, God did honor Jesus by raising him from the dead and thereby vindicating Christ's claims. When he, said, when he kept saying, I and the Father are one, I, before Abraham was, I am, in other words, talking about his eternality, he was laying down all these claims. With these all stacked up, if he really wasn't who he said he was, then God would have left him in the grave. But number six, hence, hence Jesus, because he was raised from the dead by the power of the Father, is the unique Son of God. That's how... The resurrection proves, go back, that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. Indeed the God-man. Indeed God. Again, the resurrection substantiated Christ's claim of being the God-man. And that's what it says in Acts 2. We read it earlier. This Jesus God has raised up. God has made both Lord and Christ. See, I want you to get this, because as we say, you know, he is risen, yes, he is risen indeed. Yeah, you know what you're really saying? And the book I hold is the source of truth. He is risen indeed, and you know what you're saying? And all those other gods are false, and I'm, I am serving the only true one. That will probably someday get you into big trouble if you proclaim that. He is risen indeed, and Jesus Christ is God. Number four. The resurrection proves that our salvation is complete. That's what I read in, in our Revela or, um, 1 Corinthians 15. See, when Christ died, and now he's put in the tomb, there would be all these questions for three days. Questions needed to be answered. Like, did Jesus sin during the agony and torture on the cross? That would have been a question. If you had been a, a person thinking and understanding the Old Testament and truly understanding that he was the Messiah, was his sacrifice accepted? Did he sin in the process? Was he indeed the perfect Lamb of God? Did he remain the perfect Lamb of God? Will, and then the final one is this. Will God accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Is it true that our salvation is complete? Because on the cross he said what? It is finished. I mean, again, if we see it because we understand from, you know, having it happen, but 
those would be the, those would be the questions. Is his sacrifice, was his sacrifice accepted? Accepted for, by the Father. For three days the question remained unanswered. Then the moment comes and God reaches down into that tomb and raises his son. And when, it, when we say he is alive, what we are affirming, the sacrifice was accepted. We don't have to be in our sins. We can be forgiven. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And as one man said, and God has declared by the resurrection that he has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for human sin. He is risen. And if you're a believer saying that, you're saying he is risen and the sacrifice was accepted. I don't have to earn my salvation. By the way, you couldn't earn it anyways. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. But because he is risen, as 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, I read that earlier. You can just, if Christ is not risen, now again, this is, this is doing an argument from the negative. Paul says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But Christ did rise from the dead and therefore, as a believer in Christ, you're, you are no longer in your sins. I don't think we get, you know, I, you ever try to really think about how bad sin really is? How sin is so repulsive to the Father, to the Godhead, how dark, how reprehensible, how that, you know, you wonder, how, how does God allow sinners to keep sinning if, if he hates it that much on this earth? Because there's a day coming when, when he is going to judge sin, Right? But our sin damned us. And all of the wrath that was supposed to be on us was placed on Christ. That was the last three hours when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of our sin was placed on him. And he paid the penalty for our sin. And when we receive Christ, he literally takes and, and he forgives our sin. Because it was actually... Well, in the foreknowledge of God, it was actually, it was completely taken care of, literally on the cross. Just a matter of us receiving that forgiveness that was already, um, that was already accomplished. And we are declared righteous. Not only are we forgiven, we're declared righteous. By the way, there are so many other things that happen at the moment you are saved. But the cancellation of debt, forgiveness, and the declaring of righteousness, justification are two of them. Paul says that in Romans 4. Jesus was deliver, delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. He was raised for our justification. The resurrection proves that our salvation is complete. As one said, for those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, then this statement is true of them. Only true believers, only if you've received Christ. This is what's true. When Jesus died, he died as my representative, and I died in him. When he arose, he arose as my representative, and I arose in him. When he ascended up on high and took his place at the right hand of the Father in glory, he ascended as my representative, and I ascended in him. And today I am seated in Christ with God in the heavenlies. I know you probably say, what are you talking about? 
Look up Romans 6, 1 through 6, or Colossians 3. The idea is we were, in a very hard to explain spiritual sense, we participated, not that our sacrifice was there at all, it was all Christ. But when he died, we, he was our representative. Buried representative, he's our representative. Rose again, he's our representative. Ascended, he's our representative. That's why when you see this little phrase in Scripture, in Christ, like that should almost bring tears to your eyes. Yeah, my standing before the Father is simply because I am in Christ. I am in Christ. And therefore, it's complete. I'm afraid that sometimes we as, you know, humans like to work. And we have this idea, you know, work equals people liking us, right? Pleasing. Sometimes we forget that it's not we get saved by grace and then we please the Father with works. It's all grace. It is all grace because our standing is in Christ. We are completely forgiven because we are in Christ. He is our representative. And so when, he, when we say he, he is risen... We are really proclaiming. And the sacrifice was accepted by the Father. There is no sin that remains on us if you are a believer in Jesus Christ because he paid it all. And not only did he pay it all, but again, the Father accepted the sacrifice because he he was risen or he was raised from the dead. God is satisfied. Not only is God satisfied with his Son, but if you are in Christ... God is satisfied with you. I love that. You know, maybe you grew up in a home where either mom, dad, grandparents, whatever, somebody was not satisfied with you. No matter what you did, you, nobody, he was, that person wasn't satisfied with you. Always had to do more. Always had to try to prove yourself. In fact, I, I do believe this. There are some people that are living right here just still trying to prove that, you know, their worth for that person. And that person has been dead for 20 years. Still trying to prove it. I want you to know this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have received him, he is not only satisfied, not, not only is God satisfied with Christ, if you're in Christ, God is satisfied with you. That is your identity. That's why we say our identity is in Christ. That's our identity. Yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I still ask to ask forgiveness. Yes, I sin often. But when you say, how does God look at you? God looks at me through the blood of Christ. And God looks at you through the blood of Christ. And all that would damn you has been taken care of on the cross of Christ. Isn't it exciting? He is risen. Number five. Resurrection proves that we have the ability to please God. Now again, our standing is we are declared righteous, but, not, but it also means that we can please God. Now again, no one is good, no one seeks after God, Romans 3 says that. But because Christ lives, his life can be lived out in us, and genuine holiness is possible. Not perfection, don't hear what, make sure you are not hearing perfection in my, Donna, what did I just say? I just said that we are never perfect on this side of death. But the reality is this, I can walk with Jesus Christ, I can walk in the Spirit, like Galatians 5, and I can please God. Now again, I already, I have, I, I, my standing is, is righteous because I'm in Christ. But I can, by the power of the Spirit, 
the power of the Word of God working in my life, I can walk the Christian life in a way that is holy, be holy as I am holy, you know, I can be godly. You can be godly. You can, have, you can have the power of the Spirit of God in your life to actually walk in a way that's pleasing to Him. And that's why 2 Corinthians says, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. Paul wouldn't have said that if it wasn't possible. Now again, I'm not talking about declared righteousness. That's justification. I'm talking your sanctification. See, as God looks at you, He sees through the blood of Christ, you are forgiven. But I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, and I'm going to move over on this side of the pulpit because I'm now talking about sanctification. You can please God. You can walk in a way, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, of pleasing God. You can do that. Why? Because of the power of the Spirit. Because of the power of the Word. You know, He is our advocate. He is the one making intercession for us. I mean, I, I, see, I knew this one when I was back in Bible college. Yeah, declared righteous, justification, got it. Only by faith. For by grace are you saved what? Through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift. Total gift, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I understood that. But it it took me a long time to really understand that, you know what? In my daily life, I can actually make the decisions and have the power to please the Father on a consistent basis. Not perfect, but I can please Him. Isn't that a wonderful thought? The God of eternity, the, the God who always ha- is, <laughs> is, was, is, and is to come, I mean, the God can be pleased with us. Yes. Why? Because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. Because he is, he is alive, our life is in him, and victory is possible through his power. That's the whole point. Victory is possible because of the fact that Christ is living. We are in him. Two more, very quickly. The resurrection proves that the Christian, that, that the Christian has eternal life. Okay, not just the fact that salvation is complete, not just the fact that I can be pleasing to the Father, but our salvation itself is eternal. That we have eternal life. Jesus said in John 14, because I live, you also will live. You know, we read over that, yeah, that's right. That's right. I get so, I get so sometimes concerned about 2015. I, I need to start thinking about 4,350. That's when I got to start thinking about, right? See, we got to think about 2,000 years in advance. We got to start thinking about uh, 500,000 years in the future. That's what we have to start focusing on. The future. And we say the future, I'm not talking next year. The future, eternal life. I hate to say this, I'm going to a funeral. Actually, I'm going to be going to a funeral this afternoon. My uncle died. I got to do, the, I got to do part of the funeral on my wife. But it reminds us that, you know, we're all going to die, right? Unless Jesus Christ comes back, we're all going to die. Some of you are going to be quicker than others. Who knows? We, you may not be here next year. Last year was at this time I went to my grandmother's funeral, came back. When I was at the funeral, I met a couple, well, I, I didn't meet because it was my uncle Max, talked to him, had some, you know, a nice time talking to him. And I also met his uh, pastor from Dunkirk Baptist Church. And uh, my aunt called me and told me about, you know, Uncle Max dying and stuff. And she says, oh, uh, I said, why don't your pastor do the funeral? Oh, he's dead. He died too. I mean, in one year, these two guys that I had talked to last year in February are dead. That's how quick it comes. One by, well, both by cancer. 
One I, I don't think quite expected it as quick as it came. But the point is, is this. For the Christian, death is not a threat. Do you realize that? Again, I'm not saying that you want to die. I've got some things to do. I'd really like to see some more of my grandkids. You know, I have the... I love my grandkids. I love my kids, but you know, it's... <laughs> my grandkids are so much less stressful. <laughs> they are. Because, see, with my kids, I feel personally responsible. With my grandkids, I can just, yeah, they're really great and fun, and if there's any issue, you just, yeah. <laughs> no, right? I mean, I can just enjoy them, you know? I, I even posted a thing. It was on Facebook. I actually put it on uh, Facebook. It was a little, little picture, a little cartoon. said something about the, the little girls are looking in the refrigerator, and the mom's standing right there and said something like, you know, can we just play like we're at grandma's one more day? You know, <laughs> like get whatever we want, chocolate, milk, and cookies. <laughs> there's a, for time's sake, there's a key word, and it's used of only Christians, never unbelievers, and it's the word asleep. That they sleep. You find in Corinthians 15, you find in 1 Thessalonians 4, where it says those who have fallen asleep Never used of unbelievers. They die eternally. But for a Christian, just sleep. Why? Because it's not a threat. Death is not a threat to a Christian. It's like you've just gone to sleep. You're expecting to be what? Morning comes, you do wake up again. There's a story out of the Civil War. A group of soldiers had spent a winter night without the tents in an open field. Kind of like a night like their day like today. During the night, it had snowed several inches, and at dawn... The chaplain reported a strange sight. The snow-covered soldiers looked like mounds of new graves. And when the bugle sounded reveille, a man immediately rose from each mound of snow, dramatically reminding the chaplain of the resurrection. Can you imagine that? Like 50 guys, and all of a sudden you see them. That's why death is referred to as sleep. See, it's not victorious. That's why Paul says death is swallowed up in victory. When Moody lay dying, his daughter Emma began to pray for his recovery. Moody said, no, Emma, don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. I've been looking forward to it. Shortly afterward, Moody was received up into glory. See, we can be confident even in death. Actually, death becomes a friend, and I know this is, and if I was told I had cancer and six months to live, I'd, we all have this, no, I want to live a little longer. But think about what death is. God prevented Adam and Eve from eternal sinfulness by giving them the gift of death. The ability to exit this life and arrive safely in the wondrous life to come. That's what death does. It releases you from the sinful body. Death, though it would, be, would appear to be man's greatest enemy, would in the end prove to be man's greatest friend. Because through death, we are released from the body of this death. Don't you get tired of the, don't you get tired of the, the fight of sin in your life? Don't you get tired of the temptations that you, that you succumb to? and the words and the actions and the thoughts that you have. Doesn't that tire you out as you get older as a Christian? I mean, that's why I'm looking forward to heaven. I'm not looking... The streets of gold, whatever, angels nice, you know. 
Jesus Christ, and I don't have to deal with sin any longer. I don't have to deal with the old flesh. You won't either. So again, it's, death is defeated. It's just like sleep. And finally, the resurrection proves there will be a final judgment. There will be a final judgment. In the Lord's first coming, he was humbled, he was beat, he was crucified, they mocked him, brutalized him in so many different ways. But again, he's coming back. See, when, he's, when we say he is risen, he is risen indeed. It also means that he is coming back. Acts 17.31, this is the judgment towards unbelievers. And this is Paul on Mars Hill. And Paul proclaims that God, quote, Acts 17.31, has appointed a day on which Jesus will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And you might say, well, who is he ordained? And he can continue. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. The one that I raised from the dead, he is the one that is going to have all authority to judge the world. That's Christ. In fact, as we're doing our series in Revelation, Revelation 19, when he comes back to, to judge and then to judge, and that's what you see. You know, the, the rest of the book, after starting in chapter 6, is the judgment right up to chapter 20. The judgment of the world. God remembers, and, and it says in John 5, it says this, that the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. Because he rose from the dead, we are assured of a final judgment. Now that brings us right down to us, right? He's coming back to judge. Jesus Christ is the judge, given by the Father. He's the one that's going to judge unbelievers and believers. Or to say it this way, the salvation plan of God in its full fullness completed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, will either mean to you heaven or hell. The resurrection of Christ means that you will spend eternity even, either in hell or heaven, right? Because he lives. And his sacrifice is there. And he will come back to judge all. Now again, we know that he's going to come back to judge us for reward as believers, but the fact that he's living means, the fact that the resurrection happens means that there is judgment day coming. Either for you, it will be hell or heaven. And the question is, what have you done with Christ? Now again, it sounds so obvious. I mean, what have you done with Christ? He came, he lived a perfect life, he died a perfect death. The sacrifice was accepted. It was complete. He was able to say, it is finished. What does John say? If you receive him, you will be forgiven. You will be made a child of God. The question is, have you ever received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because the fact that he rose from the dead means that he's coming back and will judge every man. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? I, I didn't say, are you a, religion, a religious person? Yeah, I go to church once in a while. I try to pay my dues called the tithe. No, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, have you recognized your need for a Savior because you've seen your sin? You know how sinful the things you do, the things you say, the sin that's in your heart. I need to be released from this, and I know God is holy. I know that God is going to judge me someday through His Son. I need, and I need a Savior. I, it's not my righteousness. My righteousness is His filthy rags. 
Have you ever turned to Jesus Christ and admitted yourself to be a sinner and asked him to forgive you based on what he did on the cross? If you haven't, you can ask him right now. I mean, we're going to be standing. Let's stand right now. We're going to sing in just a moment. But again, I don't want to leave this moment (laughs) just to sing. If you're saying, you know what, I need Christ. I don't need religion, I need Christ. If your heart says, you know what, I need to be forgiven. I've got this burden, I thought I had to like be good someday and God may accept me. It's not by works of righteousness. It's when a person realizes, I need Christ. He's my salvation. He came for that purpose, not to be a good example or to be a good teacher. He came as the perfect Son of God to give His life as a ransom for many. He paid for my, he paid the penalty. The wrath that should be on me went to him because of my sin. The wrath that is on you or is on you or was on you went to him. But again, if you've never received him, that wrath of God is still abiding on you, John says. So if you've come and you say, you know, I'm burdened by the weight of sin. I want to, re- I want to get rid of this sin. Turn to Christ. It's not about me. It's not about this church. It's not about even like memorizing more verses. It's recognizing that, recognizing that Jesus Christ is the only Savior and you put your full faith and trust in Him. You receive Him as your Lord and as your Savior. Have you done that today? I trust that you have.